Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. Today, joined by an amazing gentleman, Rob Newson, uh, who is uh, ex-Navy SEALs, uh, worked in the White House, in the military attachment to the White House, is now working on an area of cancer and special ops. Again, today, you'll also hear about the story about his other bit of work that he did in the 76ers uh, and the sports team there, sports franchise. But I think that the key thing for me that we're going to hear today is this red thread about the honor, honor and integrity about his life, his work, and what he's done. Um, you're going to hear about the care for others. You're going to hear about the vulnerability. You're going to hear about the being willing to ask for help, um, but also the the really serious issue around cancer in the military and, and what he's doing to help that uh, and support that. Hashtag swarm cancer uh, is his hashtag around what he's trying to do in there. So enjoy the episode. You will love it. Well, welcome. Welcome to the Leadership Tales podcast. Yeah. Thank How you. are you doing? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Good. So for the listeners, Rob, tell us a bit about yourself. Tell us a bit about your background. Yeah. Yeah. So my, my dad was in the Navy and retired in uh, mid seventies and we moved back to Kansas, which was his and my mom's home state. So I grew up in, in a small town called Wellsville, Kansas, was fortunate enough to get a Navy ROTC scholarship and went to the university of Kansas where I walked on the football team and, and played, uh, five season red shirting one, one season, but I was with the team for five seasons, got my commission in the Navy and went to the SEAL teams. I spent uh, just under 30 years in the SEAL teams, uh, leading at every level, rising to the rank of captain 06. And I retired in 2018. My, my first marriage ended about uh, seven years in, and, and I became a single parent raising our three small children who were five, four, and two at the time. So that was a very unique experience, being a, a single dad in the, the mid-90s. I'm, I'm with the love of my life now, who's, uh, who's just makes everything better and, and really you know, help, helped our family take a, a broader perspective on what, what love and, and, uh, action on love is all about. Hmm. Uh, so it. I retired in 2018. I worked a year at the white house military office, a uh, really great experience serving hmm. in the white house, working in the, the East wing and, and, uh, just being in the building with so much history and gravitas and working with the, the best that the, the military has to offer, Air Force One, Marine One, Camp David, the, the White House Medical Office, just tremendous people. Mm, I can imagine. So after, after that year, I took a, a break and finished my PhD from the University of San Diego in leadership studies, picked up a, a job with the Philadelphia 76ers. The title was Vice President of Strategy and Vision, but it evolved basically to uh, chief of staff function for the general manager, Elton Brand, who's just just a great man, great leader. I really enjoyed working with him and and working with Harris Blitzer Sports Entertainment, the corporate headquarters that runs two or three teams and lots of businesses. But just a great experience there. 
How did you get into that? I'm fascinated by the leap into there, you know? Yeah. So come yeah. here and do vice president of strategy. And <laughs> Very rare, right? I, well, I think I was the only guy with that title and, and that kind of job. We, we tailored it for me, but I got the introduction. There's a great organization that supports special operators, uh, people from the special operations community in transition. It's called the Honor Foundation. Mm. So the Honor Foundation basically runs a, a three-month kind of executive course on transition and helping you understand who you are, what you want. I was involved with them for, for many years, starting around 2007, I think. So when I left the White House, I reached out to them and I said, hey, I'm looking for something incredibly far afield. I, I don't want government service. I, I don't want contracting. What's the weirdest thing you have? And, and they laughed and they said, look, we've got this guy, former Navy guy who is at the 76ers. He constantly calls us and wants to interview a SEAL hmm. to be the vice president of athlete care. Right. And I laughed and I said, look, I don't even know what athlete care is, but that's far enough afield. <laughs> and I think I'd like to talk to them. Yeah. So I talked to Alex Rucker, the vice president of the executive vice president of basketball operations at the time, we hit it off. I talked to Elton Brand, had multiple interviews. And one of the interviews, I, it was a panel of, of other vice presidents. And one of the guys said, why are you so excited about being in the NBA? <laughs> yeah. And I said, look, I'm not. I don't know anything about the NBA. I don't follow professional sports. But what you guys are talking about on the staff is teams, leadership, and culture. Mm. That's what I care about. That's what I'm passionate about. And I think I can help with that. And so that really resonated with them, had great conversations with Elton about culture and leadership. And they were really interested in exploring how you develop championship culture in the staff, right? I, I wasn't mm. messing around with the with the players, the coaches, and 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 close staff on the travel team really focus on that culture. But in in sports teams, right, there's often this tremendous focus on the culture of the team, meaning for NBA, 17 players and coaches and, and that small staff, and not a lot of attention on the culture of the organization and the staff and the people that support all of that, right? The, the bottom part of the pyramid. So that's what really what we were talking about is, is what is, what's the culture of the organization and the staff. Hmm. I love that because, you know, my favorite team in soccer is Newcastle United and they, you know, the coach underrated coach in my opinion but what he's done is he's built the behind the scenes staff yeah and with the, the rest of the team and and you can't underestimate the impact that having a supportive functional team behind that is important i presume that's the same with the seals and how you operate that as well because we see the and the the tv and the movies with you know everybody has the seals at the front but there's such a huge organization behind it so yeah, is that just deploying that yeah it, it is right. It, it's it's um, partially applying what I learned and developed in in the SEAL teams. Yeah, I, I was fortunate enough to help help write the Navy SEAL ethos. We we took about thirty guys, put them on an island, and and 
kind of wrote wrote this this document that says this is who we are. And so that was a great experience. And and as a strategist within the SEAL teams, uh, a lot of my focus was on culture and standards and, you know, applying it to the future. So it was an, an alternate application of things I already knew. And, and SEALs and special operators, that's what makes them so new, unique is mm-hmm. they, they are problem solvers and are having an innate ability to combine and adapt to whatever environment while still bringing the same skills of innovation and ingenuity and adaptability to to the problem set. So that's that's basically what I was doing with with the 76ers. And it was it was very interesting and fascinating. Mm, I can imagine. No, Cockle Shell Heroes is one of the movies, one of my ex-Special Forces friends who used to work with me, and he said, watch that movie and you'll get a sense of it. It was put people into Scotland on a train with no money and they had to get back to the base, and that was the original training in there. And that's the problem solving, isn't it? So Exactly. uh, Exactly. So 76 is successful? Yeah, for those who don't know the sport? Yeah. Uh, Well, they're, as a... As a team and a franchise, very storied. Um, they they have three NBA championships to their name. Um, you know, Doctor Julius Irving, Doctor J is is and and Charles Barkley are, are two of our famous players. We have probably two of the best players in the league right now, and and uh, they're sitting at third, currently third in the in the conference, and uh, hoping mm-hmm. hoping to do a long and deep run into the playoffs. So what's your uh, free throw technique like? Have you improved? <laughs> I haven't <laughs> even touched the court since <laughs> since high school, so I would have to guess it's very poor. <laughs> uh, amazing. Such a story. I just want to dip into the, the White House because, you know, when you get a clash of different cultures, SEAL, very different, and then getting in the White House and, and thinking about the political and almost depoliticizing of that in a lot of cases yeah. in terms of what you're doing. How did you find that? Because for me, I'm not a political animal and I really struggle uh, going into a political environment and working in there. But it sounds like you had a, a really good experience in there. How did you well, it was that? a fantastic experience. Uh, one of the best leaders I've, I've known and in the mm. SEAL teams or anywhere else was in charge of the White House military office, uh, Admiral Keith Davids. Really, the tone and the culture comes from from the leader. And we were fortunate in, in the White House military office our job was military support to the president, right? Mm-hmm. Moving him, protecting him from uh, a communications perspective, from a health perspective. There's no politics involved in yeah, that, okay. we're, right? Yeah. We're we're just providing uh, Department of Defense support at the highest presidential mm-hmm. standard of service, and mm-hmm. and so there was we were we were a, a bit removed from from the politics of, of the day, if you will. But still, you know, I had, I had friends and, and people I knew that um, would comment about the White House, like, oh, I'd never go to the White House. And, mm-hmm. and my, my return was, look, it doesn't matter who, who sits in the White House. It's the people's, it's the people's house. Yeah. And there's so much history and, and um, gravitas to the place that ev- I think everyone should, 
should try to visit, regardless of of, of if you support the current president, president or the politics of what's going on. It's it's an amazing piece of American history, as as a lot of Washington D.C. is. So yeah, I, I was fortunate to not to not to be drawn into the politics of it. Good, and we won't be on this. So let's let's move on to what you're working on now, because I I love the fact that you've moved on the team's leadership and culture. I could talk about all day and just yeah. dip into your thinking on that, which I'd love to do at some certain point, but. The, the focus on cancer and special ops is, is your primary focus now. Is that, that right, apart from the 76ers? Yeah. yeah, so I, when I left the 76ers, I, you know, part of it was um, a, a great time for transition. Um, my entire time with the 76ers was during the pandemic, and I was working remotely and was able to be with family in San Diego and planted roots and revived roots, so I didn't wasn't ready to go back to Philadelphia, hmm. but I was also looking for a point of contribution. And I had cancer myself in 2017, the surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, hormone therapy. And, you know, that's a tough road for hmm. anybody. But then it's, I tell people, it's like when you buy a red car and then you're like, oh, wow, there's red cars all over the place. You're primed to to see things that you weren't. And once I had cancer, people would come up to me and, and talk about other teammates. And did you hear about Bill and John and Joe? And, and they have cancer too. And, and it was just shocking how many teammates had cancer at a, a fairly young age, right? Cancer is normally in the 60s and 70s. That, so we had very young, healthy, active people with aggressive and often rare cancers, there was a group of us that realized something was going on and started to agitate for, for action and attention. And so I, I've been, been working with, with a bunch of veteran supporter organizations that support special operations and, and, and or are focused on cancer in the military. The Hunter 7 Foundation is a, is a phenomenal organization that's doing great work in research and awareness, but yeah. I really wanted to try to, to move the ball forward. We're working on awareness. We're working on pathways to, to treatment, genomics and individualized medicine and, and, and immunotherapy are really coming into their own and, and are the future of cancer. So I've been working with organizations that will provide that to special operations soldiers and sailors and Marines, both women and men who are, you know, survived war and all kinds of difficulty. And you come home and, and you're, you're faced with a fight of your life you never expected. And, and so we're trying to, to circle the support in education, awareness and treatment and research, all critically important stuff. And, and the U S special operations command is, is working for, active duty folks to to figure out how they take care of them on the cancer front. And we've kind of got a, a coalition of the willing. And I talk about a swarm where people are coming from wherever they are on mm. and, and swarming on cancer. So we're we're trying to do that for the veteran community. Amazing. Tell me a bit about the the stats because when we were first talking about this, the 
the correlation is so much higher in the special ops than than other areas. And the research that says, why is this the case? Is that clear at the moment or is that still being worked? No. And so, you know, most of, of where we have a sense and, and in the military would call it indications and warnings, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have intelligence and, and clear facts, then, then you have, you have facts and you can say, this is what's happening. When you don't have that, you have in indications and warnings, mm -hmm. which mean, I, I don't know if this is really happening, but this is saying it could be happening. And so anecdotally, we're seeing a, a, just an enormous number of, of service members, both in special operations and the broader military, who have very aggressive cancers, very young. There's not enough research and there's not enough data right now to definitively say this is what's going on. And so we're, we're supporting research just in the initial stages on, on the facts of the numbers, right? What are the percentages? One of the numbers that Hunter 7 puts out is that, that for active duty military, it's the chances of, of receiving cancer is one in seven. That's not factors higher than and the general population. But if you think about the general population, their cancer, you know, peaks in the 50s, 60s and 70s. And you yeah. think about the population of the military, which is in the 20s, 30s and 40s, primarily, there's a huge problem going on. If, if one in seven for people that, you know, the average age is around 30 or 40 and, and young as 20, something is going on. So we think part, partially it's, is toxic exposure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that increases with war. War is incredibly toxic. I, I did a small study on toxic exposure going back to, to Vietnam and Agent Orange and, and the desert, desert Storm and, and the syndrome related to that. And of course, 9-11, toxic exposure. And, and so we think we're just seeing high level, levels of toxicity from, from war. And for special operators, that includes just the vast amounts of bullets and, and explosives that we expend often indoors in shoot houses that that add can add significant toxic exposure. But you add to that lifestyle exposure. Yeah. The the World Health Organization a couple of years ago said that night shifts, right, working night shifts is a carcinogen. Mm. It, it messes with your body so much that it increases likelihood of cancer. Well, the, right, the military works at night when you're doing yeah. your missions, especially special operations. It's it's a lot of night work. It's a lot of disrupted sleep, and so there's lifestyle impacts and exposures that that are affected. And then there's environmental exposures. We're going to places that have high less levels of toxicity too. And so you put all those three together with with high stress and and um, increased vulnerability to inflammation. And it's just a toxic brew of opportunity, increased opportunity to have cancer. You know, it's interesting. There's there's a trend just across military toxic exposure that the institution wants to wants facts. And so they'll say there are no hard facts that this is happening. And you, you mm. this this happened in Vietnam, this happened in Desert Storm. And it took 40 years since Desert Storm 
to definitively identify that that was caused the 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 syndrome was caused by sarin gas exposure. The research that's definitive lags so far behind the actual need for treatment and care that mm-hmm. most of the people are dead by the time you can say this is why it happened. And so we probably won't know definitively why military people and special operators are are in the fight with cancer for for decades. So we hope to speed that up. The great genomics and DNA testing now may be able to to shorten the timeline of, of research. But you know, regardless of why it's happening, I think the first thing is is awareness that people have increased toxic exposure, um, awareness that they need to tell their care providers they should should be screened early and often, regardless if it's a standard of care, right? The, the yeah. standard of care for uh, prostate cancer or colonoscopy or whatever probably should be accelerated for people who have higher exposures. And so knowing that you can take, take some action yourself and with your care providers, and there's new screening tests that, that test for 50 di- different types of cancers with, with just a blood draw. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out how, how that's implemented at scale so that you can discover you may have cancer in stage zero or stage one. And really what we're seeing now is um, because it's young, active, healthy people, when they go to a doctor and say, I've got this problem, the first thought isn't cancer. And so Mm -hmm. often those diagnoses are missed until they can't be denied and it's stage four and it's staring, you know, the medical community in the face. Okay, now you have stage four cancer. And really, you're making terminal life decisions. You're not making decisions about how you're going to fight cancer because it's caught so late. Mm. And that's that's what's absolutely critical to to this effort is early, early screening and awareness by the medical community that that standard of care probably isn't needs to needs to be adjusted for special operators and military folks who have a higher risk of cancer. Yeah, high intensity screening comes in. I mean, it's interesting. Just personally going and doing my medicals recently in Singapore, and in Singapore they do screen everything, the ultrasound. Yeah, but it's that you know, at my age, it's more my worry that, as you say, my cancer levels at that all cancer risk is higher. Yeah. But actually, getting people to be bit and having that as part of our lifestyle, but that's for the wider population. So I think a lot of the work and research you're doing will impact on the rest of the. Society. Oh, there's no doubt, and that's yeah. part of of special operations, right? Is is I'm focused on special operations because that's my community, but also mm-hmm. because it's a smaller population that is is very adaptable and quick and. We can discover things and set standards and the rest of the military, just like in military operations, can adapt the techniques and procedures that we're applying. And then, of course, that can be applied to broader civilian cancer fight as well. So I think this this has uh, has a lot of application. The impact of the, of the culture in terms of willingness to ask for help. And I think this yeah. is quite, quite a critical thing. I was just chatting to a, a client friend today about mental health, and, and he's going to come on the podcast at some point and talk about this, which right. is this willingness to shout out and say, look, I need some help. Do you want to talk a bit about that? I've really been focused on that lately, and it, and it applies to 
um, so many things within the SEAL teams and special operations community, but I think even more more broadly, I, I'm working with with a friend who's focused on on the professional sports industry and, and players, and and it's very similar there. We think, and and one of the terms that he uses is is identity paradox, hmm. and and the paradox of of having an elite identity, if you will, is it can capture you and it becomes a need to be seen as box that, that you're trapped in with the cancer fight. I've heard stories. I know people, I've been one of those people who didn't want to talk about my cancer. I told no one except my boss that I was going through a cancer fight. My, I, not even my best friends. And part of that was I didn't want to see pity in their eyes. I didn't want to be responsible for managing their concern or trying to make them feel better about me fighting cancer. And so I thought, uh, you know, I'm just going to focus on on myself. And I, I, I don't think I, I lacked for support. I had family there and and uh, I, I wasn't lonely or isolated in the fight. But afterwards, I look back and I thought, man, what opportunities did I miss to build deeper relationships with the people I care about mm. by sharing my vulnerability, by allowing them to to care and be part of the journey? So I, I regret that I didn't engage in that. But I tell you, I, I've heard multiple stories tragic stories of great warriors who say, you know, I'm a green beret. If, and if I'm not a green beret, I'm nothing. Or I'm a Navy SEAL and that's all that I am. And so when you're faced with fighting cancer or PTSD or traumatic brain injury or so many other things that disrupt that identity, you pull inside and you don't share, you don't seek treatment. I've heard stories that I know are true. I've heard them firsthand from, from widows who said, my husband said, if I'm not this, then I'm nothing. And I'm stopping treatment. I'm deploying to war. And, and they died of cancer because they'd rather go fight with their buddies in war than accept that they have a life-threatening disease they need to fight and that, you know, that conflicts with their identity. So we're really wrestling with this concept of identity paradox and how you can be captured by the very thing that, that you love and, and gives you so much sense of contribution and purpose in life. And again, that applies to professional sports, right? You spend your life yeah. to become a professional basketball player or football player or baseball player or soccer player. And that's your identity. That's what people know you as. That's what you know yourself as and how you define yourself. It applies both when you're having a bad game or a bad season, right? If I'm, if I had a bad game, then I must be a bad person because that's all I am. And I've seen players and athletes from, Simone Biles to, you know, world-class swimmers and tennis players and, and basketball players who really struggle. And I think part of it is the system 
forces them to be singular focused, right? To, to sell, you have to make your life almost all about that. But at some point, hopefully, you someone will encourage you and you will expand your, your life with other interests. Hmm. And if you're singularly focused on one thing, that's it's just a recipe for disaster. And, and when you're, it's not very resilient, I would suppose. And when you're hit with psychological issues or, or cancer or anything else, that's challenging. If, if you're not well-rounded, it just makes it so harder to, to respond, mm-hmm. but getting back to being trapped inside this identity paradox, it makes it so difficult to, to be vulnerable and ask for help. Hmm. And it is, and it's not just professional sports people or special ops because it affects a lot of people. You know, I remember a number of my dad's era who had the identity and then retired and then lost this identity and so quickly went downhill. And it's, um, so it's, there's a number of things in here and it's interesting because we start to ask people to, to shape your identity and we've got to be careful that we don't shape this one identity or in some cases a false identity, which doesn't fit with that person's lifestyle as well. So, yeah. yeah. Well, you made a great point, right? I, I think we're transitions, liminal states where you're moving from one state to another transitions are, are the most difficult in life. And so Really, we started thinking about this stuff in military transitions, special operations transitions, and transition of professional athletes or Olympic athletes. They spent their life doing this thing, and now they have to move. But we quickly realized that it's not just at that transition point. It's in your entire career that you need to build that broader identity, know yourself more than know that you are more than what you do, I suppose. Mm. And, but, you know, I, I still struggle with this, you know, you, you, you have a vision of who you are. And Mm. so even, even with those closest to you, you want them to see you in their best, in your best light. And so it's very difficult to be vulnerable and ask for help and say, look, I'm, I'm struggling. Or, you know, I realized when I was going through cancer, it's not, it's not a binary choice between telling no one or, or telling everyone. And then with the people you tell, it's often in conversations of kind of what the limits are. You know, mm-hmm. I think if I would have went to my best friends and said, look, I'm going through cancer. It's going to be rough. I don't want you to ask about it every single day. I don't want it cancer to define me. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's o- often what happens is, when people that love you, care about you, know you, they're going to say, hey, how you doing mm-hmm. in that very sad, you know, yeah. that's the last thing you need to do is run through that over and over throughout your day. So mm-hmm. I think if I would have set limits the way with the people I care about and love and want in my life, then they would have respected that. And they would have been they would have known how to bring them be- their best selves to help me be my best self. And, and really, that's, you know, I, I've written that it. it's ironic for for SEAL teams and and special operators. The best teammates in the world are the ones who are most reluctant to depend on the team when they need it. And it's just so sad. Yeah. Wow. 
What a what a note. Well, I want to go into a more positive aspect because when yeah. you were chatting about the the lady you who you love and has been the a bringer of the family together, you told me these three great criteria when she was helping you make choices about whether she go to the White House. Well, you know, and she gave you the three criteria of important, different, and happy. And I think you've lived that in yeah. your life when you look at it. But I just I, I wanted just to you to tell the story of important, different, happy, because I think those are three great questions. For oh, it's fantastic. Team. She's so smart and and such a great teammate. So I was I was retiring from the Navy. I was in Miami, Florida, planning to move back home to San Diego, California. And I didn't know what job I was going to do, but I knew I wanted to be home. A good friend and teammate, Admiral Keith Davis, received my retirement invitation. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going back to San Diego. He said, listen, I want you to think about coming to Washington, D.C., becoming a, a senior executive in, in the DOD civilian service and working in the White House. And, of course, what a great honor to, to have that offer. And she was visiting me in Miami as I was wrapping up my tour there. And Keith and his wife, also a Navy admiral, called. And said, hey, Rob, what do you think? And I was getting ready to say no. Uh. And Kimberly said, Keith, we'll call you back. And so we <laughs> hung up the phone and she said, look, here's how I think you need to think about this. Mm-hmm. Is the job that he wants you to take, is it important? Mm-hmm. You know, and important to the nation, important to the larger scheme of things. Will it make a difference if you were there? And will you be happy? And and I think part of that happiness is, will you have a sense of contribution and satisfaction Mm -hmm. in this role? And I said yes to all three. And she said, well, there's your answer. You have to do this. And so we did it. We had a wonderful time in D.C. with amazing people. I learned so much. It was just a great opportunity. I, I think you're exactly right that I've been fortunate in in my military career, and and that's how we make decisions now. Mm-hmm. Is it important? Will we make a difference? Will we be satisfied with the level of contribution and sense of of who we are and what we're doing and who we're with? Mm-hmm. And all of that goes into happiness, right? Uh, amazing. Well, I've, I've been taking my time as I've been doing the cancer stuff in in special operations, I've been taking my time to slowly job search. I have a unique background with unique capabilities. And so you you just don't drop a a resume on people. You have to kind of get discovered and and find the right place. So I've got two or three opportunities now and I'm I'm trying to run through that and and Mm. take several months. Okay. Is this, is this the place where I'm going to find my tribe and people that I love to be with and we're making a, a, a contribution that matters and it's making us happy and, and setting us up for the future. So yeah, what, what a tremendous criteria that, that she laid out for me that we continue to use today. Remind me of her name so we can give her credit. Yeah. Kimberly, a Kimberly. wonderful ER doctor and mm-hmm. uh, former Navy vet that uh, we've been, We've been together for 20, 26 years now. Wow. Everybody needs a Kimberly in their life, it sounds like, just to give that bit of advice. I love that. So No brilliant. doubt. It makes everything better. 
We're going to finish, sir, on three questions. So, and I'm I'm fascinated to to get your answers on this. But the the first one, I think I know from our previous conversation. But what's the one memorable moment in your life that has really shaped your leadership? Small but memorable that's shaped the leadership. This is it's intertwined between one of my first interactions in the Navy at the SEAL teams and one of the most recent at SEAL Team Five. We had this this master chief they called Crazy Mac, and it, it was Master <laughs> Macintosh, tall Jamaican, just no filters whatsoever, and a hilarious man. And I was walking across the grinder, kind of our our yard in the back, and he came running up to me. He said, "Ensign, ensign." And so I stopped and he said, who will help you? That's all he said. Who will help you? You know, it's usually stump the chump with with these with the new guy at the SEAL teams and I'm an incident. And so I sit there and, and ponder it in silence. And then I turn to him and I think I've got the answer. And I say, anyone I ask, Master Chief? And he said, that is right. Don't be afraid to ask for help when you need it. And yeah. that was just one you know, one passing conversation with with the very senior enlisted guy who was trying to mentor a very new officer. But that yeah. stuck with me for so long, my entire life. Who will help you? Mm. Anyone you ask is hmm. almost anyone you ask. And the problem is we don't ask. No, I Which brings us full circle. We recently lost um, the... CEO of, of SEAL Team One, a wonderful man, father, leader. He never told anyone, to my knowledge, that he was struggling. Hmm. You know, he left far too soon under this this weight of of whatever he was wrestling with, right? People go to combat and they lose friends and teammates and they they deal with moral injury and, and physical injury. So I don't I don't know what he was wrestling with, but I know that he never asked for help. Mm-hmm. And and to me, that's the biggest takeaway is mm-hmm. the most memorable leadership point is ask for help and and look for people who need help. Yeah. Thanks to Crazy Mac. I love that name. Just gives yeah. you a, a vision of what that person was like, but what a lesson. Yeah. <laughs> On so many levels. <laughs> So second question, if you had one thing you would disrupt in leaders nowadays, what would it be? One thing. It's the frenetic hamster wheel of just activity, right? It's so hard. I've worked with with senior leaders from from the four-star level to CEOs to, you know, NBA general managers. It's so hard to get them to pause and think and interact in in a deep way because they've got so much going on. They are great at getting a lot of things done. The disruption, I think, is just just getting leaders to pause and engage and and stop thinking about the twenty five other things that are, they need to do that they are going to do next, and just be in the moment and engage. One of my best, most grateful introductions when I was with the 76ers was to meet Scott O'Neill. Mm. Scott is was the CEO of Harris Blitzer Sports mm. Entertainment and is now the CEO of, of Merlin Entertainment. But he was a guy that that was present and engaged 
and engaged at a personal level. He cared, he cared about people. And there's a great story where they hired a new guy. He showed up in, you know, in the traditional suit and tie and, and Scott could tell he was very uncomfortable. He's like, dude, what are you doing? Be yourself. Just be yourself. I don't care what you wear, but be yourself. And that's the kind of disruption in leadership, right? That he wasn't worried about what he was going to do. He was engaging in a person on a human level. And that's to me is, is what's so needed in, in our leadership. I love that. Love that story. The suit and tie is a classic, though, isn't it? You know, I once had the first person I worked with turned up in what I would call a disco suit and a disco tie, and I was given the the job of going and talking to them about what was appropriate address at the time, you know. And it was just, what is appropriate address? Yeah, so it's right. interesting. Yeah, be yourself. I love that. Final question then. So, what is the one leadership habit for you that's non negotiable that you would tell everybody? Yeah, I think it's what what always returns to me is, is, um, you know, honor, honor and integrity. When, when you're in senior leader positions and, and often people who, who are in your organization and care and respect you, they want to take care of you. Right. Mm-hmm. I, 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 rem- I, we were in Yemen. I was a task force commander for a special operations task force in Yemen. And we had screwed up. I had a, a very well-intentioned junior officer like, hey, sir, we could spin it like this. We could do that. And I, I immediately thought, I, I appreciate the effort, right, of, hey, yeah. trying to take care of, of me so I don't get in trouble in the organization. But it comes down to integrity and honor. And we're going to take our lumps. We screwed up and we need to come forward and, and say, yeah, we, we did that. It was wrong. And if I get fired, I get fired, but I, I'm not going to compromise my integrity and my honor and what I think is right for continuing in a job or making my life easier. Those red threads that you've had through this conversation, Rob, are just uh, excellent. And I, I hear the honor. I hear the integrity. I hear you work in cancer. I hear the care. I hear the vulnerability. Um, and sharing that in the stories. And it's uh, it's been a delight for you, for me to have you on and for you to share the stories with people. So thank you. Now, if people want to find out a bit more about you um, and make contact a bit about the work on the cancer, how would they find out about it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I publish free, frequently on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. So LinkedIn, Rob Newson, uh, San Diego, would be able to to find me. Uh, my hashtag that I use a lot is hashtag swarm cancer. So if you use that in LinkedIn, you'll you'll see a lot of my my posts. Sir, it was a delight. I hope at some point to get the chance to meet you face to face. It'd be uh, be brilliant. But enjoy uh, what sounds like inclement weather that you're suffering at the moment. Hope it gets better. Yeah. <laughs> even even San Diego bad weather is, is better than anywhere else in the world. I love, <laughs> I love my town. You're you're welcome to visit anytime. <laughs> I would love to. Thank you, Rob, for coming on. It's a pleasure, Colin. Thank you. Oh, uh, well, that was Rob. Uh, there's, there's times where you just feel you could talk to somebody uh, forever around many different topics, serious topics around the cancer 
about the exploration of that concept of being willing to ask for help, um, sharing the identity piece that we talked about today, um, the identity paradox um, that he was talking about with the work he's got in there with special ops. Uh, I also just love the story of Kimberly and uh, the three pieces about important, different and happy. And I think three simple questions we could ask ourselves when we transition, as we talked about transitions today, uh, when we go in different routes, what's, how important is it? Yeah. How, how different can I, I make this in terms of making a difference? And then finally, how happy will it make it, uh, make me in terms of what I do. So Rob, Brilliant episodes. Um, thank you for listening in. Uh, I look forward to welcoming you back in another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast very soon.